Welcome back to our Sunday School series in the Minor Prophet Zechariah. And today we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. So that's going to take us to the end of chapter 12, leaving us with about two chapters left of Zechariah. So we are approaching the end, maybe about four, maybe five weeks total left in this book. So, And there's a, a lot to cover in those chapters, but hopefully we'll be able to do it in a timely fashion. And I'm looking forward to revealing some details in the future about what our next series is going to be after we finish Zechariah. So let's look at uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Let me read those for us so we can look at them today. Starting at verse 9 of chapter 12. This is, uh, this is the Lord speaking here in verse 9. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Let's uh, ask the Lord briefly to bless our time as we look at this passage. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zechariah. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see uh, these things that you have written for us here. Um, your spirit inspired the prophet to write these very words for us. And so we pray that they would be profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that for us now and prepare us to be changed. In uh, the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so we are continuing with Zechariah. We are in the final section of Zechariah, okay? Now, what that means is that we're in the final piece of the outline of the book, and that final piece is chapters 12 through 14. And uh, we are in the final section, which is called the Second Prophetic Oracle, all right? And uh, oracle is just a fancy word for essentially a woe, W-O-E, a woe, a, 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 a sort of sad judgment-filled prophecy that describes upcoming judgment, but that also describes future salvation. That's essentially what an oracle is. And of course, we see that uh, so far in chapter 12. We saw that last week, that there was judgment and also blessing. And here again today, we have uh, judgment and blessing going on. Um, firstly, in verse 9, we have the promise of deliverance. And there we've got some salvation being described. And then in verse 10, we have the promise of the Messiah, which is more salvation being described, only there's a, an interesting twist because there's a promise 
um, that there will be repentance and mourning. And that's our third point, which is the promise of mourning in verses 11 through 14. So in this passage, what we're going to see is that salvation is promised. Deliverance is promised. A Messiah is promised. But there's a clever twist. Because while there is deliverance and a Messiah promised, what we also see is that that there's going to be mourning coming along with this news. There's going to be uh, sadness that comes along with true repentance. So we're going to take a look at, at this passage and see what God has to say to us here. The main point of this passage is that godly repentance leads to godly sorrow for sin. Godly repentance leads to godly sorrow for sin. So let's take a look at at the passage now and and try to to unpack this a little bit. First of all, in verse 9, we have the Lord speaking, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, and he says, And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You will remember if you listened to last week's lesson at the, the first chunk of chapter 12, there was all kinds of judgment being pronounced on wicked nations that would come against the city of Jerusalem. And as I mentioned last week, I'll say it again, and I'll say it a hundred times, Jerusalem in Zechariah is not simply talking about the physical earthly city of Jerusalem. It's talking probably primarily, most prominently, about God's people in general. And so therefore it's talking about us. It's talking about the people of God, what we would refer to today as the church of Jesus Christ, right? those who are God's true people. And so this promise is not just a promise of protection for the physical city of Jerusalem, it's a promise of protection for all of God's people for all of time. And in accordance with what we looked at last week here, verse 9 carries that thought over into our text today, which is that God will destroy any of the enemies of his people. We don't have to fear the world, the devil, or our own flesh. God has got us, right? He's got us. He's protecting us. So we have the promise of deliverance here. And in verse 10, we've got the promise of the Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, is going to be the one who brings about this deliverance that's being spoken of. But notice that there's something very interesting here in verse 10. Something very unexpected. Look at what it says. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, that is, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now let's break this passage up just a little bit into a few chunks and just look at them individually because I think there's there's absolutely fascinating things being taught here. Firstly, God says, when they look on me, that is, him whom they have pierced, that they are going to mourn. So God is saying, Yahweh himself is saying that the people are going to pierce him. The people are going to pierce God. Now the word there in the Hebrew for pierce 
does not mean uh, primarily to mock, as you might see in some English translations. It's, it's just the standard word in Hebrew that's used for taking a spear or a sword and sticking it into someone. So pierced is a good translation. That's how it's used. Uh, that Hebrew word there for pierced is used in First Kings and, and some of the other historical books for just standard stabbing, if you will. And so God says that he's going to be stabbed by the people of Jerusalem. Oh, I wonder when that happened. Right? Here we see one of the most clear references of, uh, to the, the Messiah, to Jesus himself. Right? You remember, Jesus was pierced. He was pierced on the cross. You remember that the uh, Roman soldiers, when they thought Jesus was potentially dead on the cross, they stuck a spear into his side and water and blood came out. When that spear entered into the flesh of Jesus Christ, that Roman soldier had pierced God. God was pierced in that moment. This is, of course, a prophecy pointing forward to that. Now God is saying, when some of these, with these people of Jerusalem, when they realize what they've done, that they have pierced me, that they have killed me, when they realize their sin, there is going to be mourning. Now, who are the ones who are going to realize this? Well, they're the ones on whom a spirit of grace is poured out, who have received pleas for mercy. God says that he's going to pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that... When they see that they have pierced God, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So this is going to be some serious mourning on behalf of Jerusalem when they realize their sin. And notice that this this realization comes as a result of this spirit of grace. And here we could rightly see, I think, that, that this term spirit of grace is pointing forward to the Holy Spirit. Because as we know, the Holy Spirit is the one who works saving faith and true repentance in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes into God's elect and who convicts them of sin so that in, re- in response to their understanding of their transgressing the righteous law of God, they mourn for their sin. They are sorrowful that they have disobeyed a holy and righteous God. And so there's, there's a certain sense in which this prophecy is fulfilled every time someone comes to Christ. Every time someone, someone responds to the gospel call with true and saving faith. But in a more definite direction, this prophecy is fulfilled, I think, probably the most greatly at Pentecost. Because what happened at Pentecost, you had the outpouring of the Spirit of Grace, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there was a massive conversion experience that happened on Pentecost. There were some thousands of souls who were confronted with their sin, confronted with the fact that they had killed the Son of God. In fact, Peter points this out in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon. He says, you have crucified Jesus. You have put him to death to his hearers in Jerusalem. And so this prophecy then comes to pass, I think, uh, very clearly at Pentecost. 
And when the crowds were confronted with all of their sin by Peter's preaching of the law and preaching that Christ died for the ungodly, that they were, we were told, cut to the heart. And why was that? Because they realized the guilt of their sin, and it caused them to mourn and to turn to Christ. And it's that, that mourning that we see being described in the third section of this text here in chapter 12 of Zechariah, that true repentance wrought by the Holy Spirit in our hearts leads to mourning over sin. Now we're told that this mourning is like mourning for an only child and weeping bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So this is not just like, oh, whoops, I made a mistake, God, I'm sorry. Oh, you know, God, I'm sorry, but you see, I had this really bad growing up experience and therefore my sin isn't, isn't really that serious because it's not my fault. You see, in our own day, in our own culture, we have the progressive lightening of sin where our culture doesn't want to take doing the wrong thing seriously. It wants to create every possible excuse to get around the fact that when creatures sin, they transgress the righteous law of God. And our culture gets around this by simply calling sin a mistake or a developmental issue or a, a uh, mental disability. Now, I'm not saying that there's no developmental issues or that there's no mental disabilities or anything like that. But what I am saying is that we need to be honest with what the Bible teaches about sin. Sin is not light. Sin is not simply a mistake or an oops. Sin is a serious transgression of the righteous law of God. And as such, it is very, very serious. It is exceedingly serious. And when we realize that, when the Holy Spirit brings that to our attention, it ought to generate within us deep, real, and genuine sorrow for disobeying our Heavenly Father. We are told here in Zechariah in verse 11 that this morning needs to be like this. Verse 11, On that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, you may not be familiar with that reference, but let me tell you something. All of Zechariah's audience was thoroughly familiar with that reference. And what it references is the Battle of Megiddo. And this battle is recorded for us both in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. And it was a battle between um, Israel, or I guess not really Israel, but Judah, and Egypt. Here's what happened. Egypt was at war with Babylon, all right? This is before the Babylonian exile. This is during the uh, kingdom of Judah when it was, remember, separated from Israel. So the kingdom of Judah is operating as its own monarchy at the moment. And Egypt and Babylon are in the middle of a war. Now, if you just think geographically for a second, try to picture Israel on the map. Uh, if you picture Israel on the map, you'll notice that in the southwest corner of Israel, that's where you've got Egypt, right? Kind of down there um, on that northeast African area, south of the Mediterranean Sea. So Egypt is sort of southwest of Israel, 
and Babylon is northeast of Israel. And so because Babylon and Egypt are having a war, they have to sort of send troops across Israel, across the land of Palestine, across the kingdom of Judah in order to actually fight this war. And so Egypt has all of its forces together and the Pharaoh and his armies want to march through Judah to the northeast area where Babylon is because they're going to have a battle. They're going to fight. And when Egypt's armies want to come through the kingdom of Judah, the king of Judah at the time, Josiah, says no. Josiah, I don't know if he just didn't trust the Egyptians or if he was just sort of bloodthirsty or what the deal was, but Josiah did not want to let Egypt go through his land. And so Josiah came with the Judah army and fought with Egypt at the Battle of Megiddo, in the plains of Megiddo. And the Egyptian army killed Josiah. They wounded him in the battle, and then he was taken back to Jerusalem, and he died in Jerusalem. You can read about this again, like I said, in Second Kings. I don't remember the chapter, um, but you can read about it also in Second Chronicles 35. Now, this was a huge blow for the kingdom of Judah, all right? Josiah had died. He was the very last good king of Judah. Josiah, if you'll remember, was the one who came to the throne at eight days old and had found the Torah in the temple. He's the one who found the law of God hidden there. And then he, when he found it, he was like, oh, we need to reinstitute all of these laws and actually start worshiping Yahweh again. So he was a good king. He was the last good king of Judah. And when Josiah was killed, the hopes and dreams of the kingdom of Judah were dashed against the rocks because they thought Josiah was going to be the one who would bring the kingdom of Judah back to the glory days, the glory days like the reign of David and Solomon. But he died. He got killed in the battle of Megiddo. And so the hopes of Israel were dashed to pieces and there was great Mourning, a massive mourning ceremony. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 35. There was great mourning because the last good king was killed. And once this battle had been uh, fought and Judah had lost because their king had died, Egypt gained control of the kingdom of Judah and placed sort of their own ruler on the throne. And Egypt basically remained in control of Judah until the Babylonian exile, when King Nebuchadnezzar came down and conquered Jerusalem for one final time and then led the people into exile. So that's a serious point of mourning in Israel's history. And what, what, what we're being told here by Zechariah, getting back to our Zechariah text, is that the mourning that is going to be wrought upon in the hearts of these people when they realize their great sin against God is that it is going to be as great or indeed perhaps even greater than one of the most significant sad points of the whole history of the kingdom of Judah. This is massive, great, terrible mourning over sin. What I want to suggest to you is that this is the kind of feelings that should be aroused in us when we think about the seriousness of our own sin against God. We should not have a haphazard, light, easygoing approach to our sin. When we're confronted with our own violations of the law of God, we should take it seriously. 
And we should seek to reform our lives in accordance with sanctification. We need to be doing this. We need to experience this mourning. But here's the thing. We do not need to experience this mourning for the sake of the mourning. Right? We're not supposed... This passage is not teaching us that we all, as believers, need to sort of wallow in our sorrow over sin and never go anywhere, never move anywhere with it. Now... We need to mourn our sin, right? Because mourning is a product of true repentance and true realization and true work of the Spirit in our hearts. But it needs to move somewhere. And it needs to move to the cross. It needs to move toward Jesus. When we're confronted with our sin and we mourn over it, we need to move toward the grace that is offered to us in the gospel to that realization that Christ paid the penalty for that sin which we are mourning. And this is the amazing truth of the gospel that so well colors Zechariah's teaching. Though our sin is serious and warrants serious sorrow, nevertheless, Jesus Christ paid for that sin. And so we can move forward in the light of of his glorious gospel grace and forgiveness. So praise God for that great truth. And praise God that it is his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace, who brings both this sorrow over sin into our hearts and who brings this faith and trust in Jesus Christ in our hearts. All credit and all glory to him forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for this great truth that we learn here, that your spirit of grace works in us. Sorrow over sin, our being confronted with the law, but also, Lord, you work in us the acceptance of the gospel. You, through your spirit, work in us faith in Christ and you strengthen it every day through your word, and through the sacraments, Lord, we, we thank you for these great gifts. And we pray that you would continue to work in us sorrow over sin and that we would seek to live for you. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.